This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 222nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the reigning kings of comedy. He's a stand-up comedian, writer, producer, and director who has been a driving force behind many of the funniest TV series and films of the last 30 years. Among them, The Ben Stiller Show, The Larry Sanders Show, Freaks and Geeks, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Superbad, Bridesmaids, Girls, Trainwreck, and The Big Sick. I'm talking, of course, about Judd Apatow. Now, at the age of 50, Apatow is as busy as ever, making films, he's got 11 in some form of development, and TV shows, two of which are currently active. HBO's Crashing, on which he serves as an executive producer and occasional writer and director, and Netflix's Love, which he co-created and on which he also serves as EP and occasional writer and director. But he recently received some of the best notices of his career for directing a documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, a four and a half hour two-part HBO film about his eponymous mentor and friend who died in March of 2016. Apatow and I discussed all of the above, plus much more. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Leslie Goldberg, our West Coast television editor and the primary force behind the blog The Live Feed, to chat about an utterly insane week in the TV landscape, with the June 11th start of Emmy nomination voting just around the corner. Leslie, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, I don't even know where to start with this week. This was crazy. I guess the, the biggest news has to be the fact that the top-rated show on television got canceled. Never thought you'd be able to say that, did you? I can't remember a time when the number one show on TV in terms of total viewers and then and in the demo was outright canceled. And I'm not talking about, <laughs> hey, it's the MASH series finale right. or the Seinfeld calls it a day. That but is... out of nowhere, boom, gone. Bye bye, Roseanne and Roseanne the person. This is, of course, in response to I think it was really the final straw in a, a number of things. But she tweeted a racist slur about Valerie Jarrett, a former advisor to President Obama. And so down goes ABC's top show. And obviously a very stunning development that is affecting a lot of people who worked on that show, a lot of other famous people, but also a lot of people who worked sort of uh, anonymously on it, hundreds of people who worked on that show. How did this go over in the TV community that you monitor so closely? And, and where do you think things go from here? I mean, make no mistake, this was a shock. ABC all season long 
had decided to really kind of sit it out and let the show speak for itself. When old photos of Roseanne surfaced when she was dressed as Hitler, carrying a tray of, of intentionally burned cookies, ABC said and did nothing. When Roseanne took a shot at ABC Comedy's Fresh Off the Boat and Blackish, ABC said nothing. I did not expect ABC to cancel the show. I didn't expect them to do a single thing or even respond, especially since the season had already ended. At the time they had it slotted for fall, Roseanne was the focal point of its upfront presentation to Madison Avenue ad buyers. Make no mistake about it, this was a stunning move. Clearly unprecedented. You understand the financials of TV a lot better than I do. Can you explain... I mean, again, ABC in a way they, you know, a lot of people now in hindsight are saying they really, what choice did they have? They had to take severe action when it went this far with the Valerie Jarrett comments. But the other side of the equation that they had to consider was how much financially this is going to hurt. Can you provide a little context about that? Well, I mean, that's all still to be determined. It's it's so murky right now. The show is owned by Tom Warner. Carsey Warner continues to own and produce the original show. Roseanne has an ownership because the, the series is based upon the character that she created, character singular. Mm-hmm. It's unclear if the writers will be paid. The cast, Sarah Gilbert, John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, they all recently signed new deals, getting a raise for the now scrapped season 11 that would, would have paid them 300 grand per episode based on a minimum of 10. ABC up the episodic order to 13. So you've got your stars all expecting to be paid. Writers and showrunners are like no one really knows. Then there's all the below the line people who now find themselves out of jobs and staffing season has already been completed. Mm -hmm. All the other broadcast shows, they're already booked. So if you're trying to get in on these 22 or 13 episode shows, you're now looking at cable or streaming and That's a hard ecosystem to break into if you're mostly on a a broadcast show. But in terms of the financial hit that ABC is going to take, Kantar estimated that they could take at least a $60 million loss in lost ad revenue alone. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about the woman who is the other woman at the center of this whole controversy, and that is Channing Dungy, who runs ABC. She is actually a black woman, which made it all the more dramatic here because, of course, a black woman is who Roseanne had gone after. But I think anyone probably would have reached a similar conclusion here, reached the same conclusion as Channing Dungy. But Channing Dungy is also, you know, while being hailed as a hero now, it's also the same person who put Roseanne on the air with the show when she's not been particularly predictable or well-behaved in the last few years. You have to remember, Roseanne wasn't particularly well-behaved when the show originally ran for nine seasons, remind you, nine seasons, 22 episodes. The show was always fearless in its approach to timely and controversial subjects, the same as its star. I mean, I'm a huge baseball fan. Who could forget her singing of the national anthem and the controversy that erupted after that? The show wasn't canceled. I mean, I I don't remember if the show was on the air at the time, but you know, this is someone like you knew what you were getting. So when you does Channing up. Dungy come out of this? I guess, you know, it's where you end up that matters most. And she ended up making a decision that most people feel was right. I mean, what was the rationale for getting into business again with Roseanne in the first place to try to appeal to the same sort of people that allegedly were forgotten until Trump came along? Or what was what yeah. was the rationale? I mean, that was a huge part of it. One of the things that I find super interesting is that well before Roseanne became a possibility is that Channing Dungy actually made comments at a conference where she basically said that ABC's programming does not reflect middle America, mm-hmm. as in red state America, as in the heartland who Fly voted for Trump. States, yeah. Exactly. And it, she's right. When you look at it at the time, Kerry Washington on Scandal, Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy, these are all upper class 
women. You're not seeing that portrayal of what she's talking about. And the shows that that do it are not going to be those big ratings grabbers. So I think part of the intent in getting in bringing Roseanne back was to program to middle America and to put a spotlight on on families that that where you really get get into the discussion. And and look, the first episode of Roseanne, like it or not, they addressed Roseanne's support of Trump right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Never mentioned him by name mm-hmm. and then never brought it up again for the for the remaining eight other episodes. So Channing Dungey made this decision clearly with the support of Ben Sherwood and also with Bob Iger, most importantly of all. Now, though, I wonder, do you think, again, with their consent, she might be exploring the possibility of doing some variation of Roseanne, a spinoff or whatever you would call it, that excludes Roseanne? Is that even possible because of the ownership breakdown? Or is that just sort of something that people are talking about without actually knowing its feasibility? Even though we're a week removed from the cancellation, that's still one of the topics that that's yet to be discussed. We broke a story recently that said that they would have meetings to discuss a possible. And, you know, look, ABC won't comment on the record about this, but everything that we're hearing from sources is that they're open to doing an offshoot or a spinoff. But just because you're open to it doesn't mean that that's actually going to happen. And who would it be? There's I mean, so talent. much red tape that that has to get cut yeah. through. Like, does she own like she owns the rights to the character of Roseanne Connor? Well, does she own, by association, the rights to Darlene Connor, if you were to do a Sarah Gilbert right, spinoff? Right. That's all still to be determined. And it's so messy, you know, when well, you even if she it. does, though, Leslie, if she let's say she owns some of these other characters and these people who worked on the show with her, who I presume still consider her a friend, John Goodman, Laurie Metcalf, Sarah Gilbert, if they went to her and said, look, you've put us in a terrible position, can you please... Would you be willing to sell the characters or whatever to ABC? I don't know that ABC wants to be seen as buying characters from Roseanne, doing anything with Roseanne. They don't want Roseanne Barr to profit from anything that right. they're doing. And that was a big part of the cancellation. And whether or not, look, this all happened so fast, it's it's unclear if if they even considered, like, well, can we just fire her and can the show continue without her? But then she's she's the head writer. She's the executive producer. She owns part of it. It's all a giant mess, as, which is a direct quote from one source. <laughs> <laughs> well, another less important thing that happened as a result of Roseanne Barr's tweet and the cancellation of the show is that ABC has also thrown overboard the FYC Emmy campaign for the show, and it probably was not going to be a huge Emmy player even with ABC's support because Roseanne is not the cup of tea of that many people out here. She never was even when the show was on the first time. She did have one win, but the show was not a perennial nominee or anything like that. It was it was always more, I think, a, a fan favorite that, or a viewer favorite than an industry favorite. But do you think that in a way, the way in which she screwed so many of the people that she worked with who are respected, like John Goodman, like Laurie Metcalf, could actually redound in some way to their benefit where people are saying, look, they, it's not their fault that she did what she did and they were fine even if we don't necessarily like the show and the fact that even though the show's named after her look john goodman and laurie metcalf were very good and they were perennial nominees the first time around why should they be punished because of what roseanne did yeah i I mean you're the the pro when it comes to all of this stuff (laughs) scott but it's unclear if they'll get the quote-unquote sympathy vote i watched every episode of the show i I grew up watching and loving the original Mm -hmm. was it as good as the original in my two cents no, this not at all. Yeah. Did it achieve what it set out to do in terms of opening up a dialogue in middle America? Absolutely. I would be surprised if it got a writing nomination, but I, I don't read the MET leaves the way you do, <laughs> but my hope would be that if they were to get anything, possibly a writing nomination. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking about it, I guess the only 
comparable situation in TV history that I'm aware of, and this is not even on the scripted side of things, would be Fox News having to fire O'Reilly, who was the top-rated guy on cable news, you know, when stuff came out about him. But really, otherwise, this is just a really a crazy situation without anything equivalent to it. However, that has not kept people from trying to create an equivalency with something that Samantha B said. This is the host of TBS's Full Frontal, who a few days ago went on the air and said that as part of a larger criticism of the way Ivanka Trump has handled or neglected to handle some of her responsibilities as an advisor to her father, called her a feckless C-word, quote-unquote. That's definitely not appropriate language. Nobody's saying it is. But the idea that that is akin to a overtly racist comment from somebody who has years of history of making racist comments, including a very similar one five years ago about another black advisor to President Obama, Susan Rice, it just seems like the right felt like, all right, you got one of our scalps, we're coming after one of yours. And to their credit, TBS has stood behind Samantha B. partly, I think, because they approved the script and the episode that she taped with that word in it. I guess they didn't see there was a problem either until it blew up in their face. That is if they approved it. That's that's all still to be determined. Is that, I, I mean, mean, how did it get on the air? I mean, look, these late night hosts, it's it's really unclear, especially on a cable network like TBS, yeah. what kind of, of liberty people like Samantha B have. One of the things that I've been, been hearing is that they TBS is going to be much more hands-on with the I show. Imagine, I mean, yeah. a lot of these scripts don't come in until minutes before. Right. I mean, this is the news cycle that we are dealing with right. is it, it's insane. You it's you can't keep up with it. No. Like you'll finish writing. I'll finish writing one one story. And right. in, in that time, the story that I'm writing has already <laughs> taken three different steps forward. Right, right. You know, and, and look, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to brag, but I type pretty fast. Oh, you do. But I, this I is still it. like you can't keep up. Well, so, uh, you know, the thing is also that Samantha B is the, has said that exactly what you just said. It's like we're we've got so much coming at us, even though she's a once a week show versus some of these guys that have to do this every night. It can be overwhelming to try to keep up. She said that when she was on this podcast earlier in the spring and then again, less than two weeks ago when she came out to L.A. to do an FYC event over at the Writers Guild on Doheny and it surprises me to some extent that she wouldn't have seen that using that phrase might not go over very well. But I don't think it seems like a parallel offense in the way that some on the right are trying to make it. But it seems like also there's just this overall culture of outrage that has affected a lot of people in the TV world recently. We saw it with Jason Bateman. Nobody's saying Jason Bateman was correct to sort of defend Jeffrey Tambor in that New York Times interview about Jessica Walter. But the vitriol that came at that guy in the less than 24 hours before he apologized, a guy who prior to that was known as about as decent and solid a guy as there is. And who spent his entire life on, you know, in front of and now behind the camera, too. It just struck me that, you know, nobody's safe. I mean, when was the last administration in the White House who called for the cancellation of a TV show? That's right. That's right. It's almost like a, I mean, in that way, I think Samantha B. if it were un- under any other circumstance, would see it as a badge of honor. But the whole Samantha B. episode actually unfolded just ahead of her being feted at what they call the TV Academy Honors, where they recognize a selection of shows each year for contributing to positive social change. So you can imagine the the fact that A lot of the folks who were furious at her for this remark tried to shut that down. They did not. She still got the honor. But 
this issue doesn't seem to be going away for her or Jason Bateman. But anyway, in the same week that the top-rated show on TV went down, another top-five show got rocked with some news that seems still unclear to me what brought it about, and that is that Andrew Lincoln, the star of AMC's The Walking Dead, is piecing out. What What is that about, Leslie? That's massive, too. I mean, I think a lot of people, that broke this around the same time as Roseanne, and I don't think enough is being said about that. Andrew Lincoln has been with the show since day one. He plays the lead character. He's number one on the call sheet. He plays Rick Grimes, the hero of the comic books, who, you know, no, no spoiler alert here, but he's still very much alive in the comics. Andrew Lincoln leaving The Walking Dead is a major, major news story. As for why, look, AMC has not commented publicly about Lincoln's departure. Lincoln's camp has been relatively quiet. They haven't even acknowledged the story publicly yet. But look, you know, he's he's a family man. He lives in London with his family. Uh, the show shoots in Atlanta. Much has been said about the insane conditions of shooting in the middle of the woods and the fleas and ticks that the <laughs> cast used to have to endure during some of those scenes. Andrew Lincoln is a guy who has made a point that he he said, I don't need to use this show to propel my career. You know, if you remember, he was in Love Actually. The guy is not hurting for work. And he's got, you know, eight seasons and a few more years than that of the leading role on what was TV's number one drama. Mm -hmm. I think he's going to be okay. But as for why, I'm very curious. But he's said that, you know, in previous interviews on our site with me that that he sees his time coming to an end. He feels like the audience deserves to know what happens to these characters. And I think that show is a very demanding production. Can a show like that go on without the guy who's its lead? I just wonder, especially when we know it's coming now, it would have been one thing if he wanted out and they kept it quiet and they killed off his character. It would have been a huge storyline and people would be talking. Now we're going to be looking for that. Yeah. Well, it's also coming in. in season nine returns in October. It's, it's a massive time of change for, for The Walking Dead. No spoiler alert here again, but last season, Chandler Riggs, who played Rick's son Carl, was killed off. Mm-hmm. That was a, a huge shock. The actor just bought a house in Atlanta. He was committed to the franchise. And this is a kid who grew up on the show and who was seen as not only the the future of the comic book, but the future of the series as well. You know, look, for eight years, we've been doing, you know, the characters most likely to be killed off on The Walking Dead. And for eight years, Carl has been last on that list. And that's exactly what they did last year. It was a stunning surprise. And the actor and his father both spoke out about it, about how surprised they were by it. But, you know, look, heading into season nine, the show is coming back with its fourth showrunner, Angela Kang, who's taking over for Scott Gimple. Scott moved on to become the chief content officer of all things Walking Dead for AMC. And AMC promoted him because creator Robert Kirkman, who wrote and co-created the comic book, left AMC for an overall deal at Amazon. You want to talk about it all coming back down to peak TV? Well, this is it. (laughs) There you go. So you've got the creator of The Walking Dead going to Amazon. And now you have AMC, which has a global phenomenon. It's got to be a billion-dollar business of The Walking Dead, multiple lawsuits. And now you have to fill a position. You have to find someone to replace Kirkman in that role. So now you've got Gimple, who is now an EP on spinoff Fear the Walking Dead, which for the first time in four seasons intersected with the flagship, which was something Kirkman, when he was at AMC, always said that the show would never do. Then you got Lenny James moving over there. Now you've got Lauren Cohan, who's now leaving because she had a, her own salary standoff with AMC. She's got the lead in a new ABC show. So you've got Lauren Cohan and Andrew Lincoln both returning for a handful, maybe six of its 16 episodes in season nine. Time of change. And meanwhile, they're negotiating a $20 million payday for co-star Norman Reedus. <laughs> they definitely have plenty to 
talk about on what do they call it? Talk of the Talk talking of the Walking Dead. Talking, talking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Chris Hardwick's gonna be a very busy man yes. next season. One other executives related topic that I think we should talk about while I have you is the Viacom situation at the moment. We've been hearing for a while that Viacom and CBS have been having issues. Uh, that's where Sherry Redstone and Les Moonves have been bucking heads very publicly and kind of outmaneuvering each other with, with the board and all kinds of craziness there. But then you, there's a whole separate issue that is specific to the various TV networks that fall under the umbrella of Viacom. What has Viacom president and CEO Bob Backish been up to lately? Well, in the past year plus that he's been on the job, he has replaced, systematically replaced every single head of a network. In the past month, you've seen BET and Nickelodeon both part ways with executives who have been there for three decades plus. That followed news of, you know, they brought in a new president at MTV. It's third in three years. They had a change at Comedy Central. He's cleaning house. You know, his job is to revitalize that conglomerate. And I think... Part of that, you know, I haven't spoken with Backish, but I think part of it is he's, you know, you look at what these executives are making after three decades, they're not cheap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, times are changing. You've got new executives coming in with ideas and and digital plays to make, and then you're trying to compete with Netflix. And that was something that BET and, and Nickelodeon weren't doing for the past couple of years. So now you've got Netflix and Amazon coming in, and they're, they've made headways in, in the kids' programming space. And, and now given the new push for inclusive casting on screen programs that were typically earmarked for BET are getting, you know, there's bidding wars mm-hmm. and BET is not going to win those. Well, it's definitely a fascinating and busy time in the TV world, as you know better than anybody. We didn't even talk about the fact that The Americans had its big series finale with that great parking garage scene. We had Killing Eve, sort of one of the big news shows, end its first season over at BBC America. You got the NBA finals and the Stanley Cup finals, not to mention our beloved baseball. We could go on forever, but that will be it for now. Thank you so much, Leslie Goldberg. Thank you, Scott Feinberg. And now for my interview with Judd Apatow. Over the course of our conversation at Apatow's office building in West L.A., which has been nicknamed the Apatower, the 50-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how a kid who was unusually small, a bit of a social outcast, and the child of parents who got divorced when he was still very young, wound up falling in love with comedy, consuming countless hours of it on TV, transcribing SNL and Merv Griffin monologues in order to study them, writing a 30-page paper about the Marx Brothers for pleasure when he was still in grade school, and interviewing famous comedians for his high school radio station starting at just 15, why he eventually abandoned dreams of being a stand-up and focused instead on being a writer, and how that led to him writing for everyone from Roseanne Barr to James L. Brooks to Ben Stiller. He was part of a writing team that was awarded an Emmy for the Ben Stiller show. And also for Gary Shandling, who eventually gave him his first opportunity to direct something as well. What he learned from various heartbreaking experiences, both from working in film, like being screwed out of a writing credit, and in TV, from having many of the shows that he poured his heart into canceled abruptly, most notably Freaks and Geeks, how he wound up breaking in as a film director, assembling a stock company of actors, and, as a producer, mentoring young talent like Lena Dunham, Amy Schumer, and Kumail Nanjiani in a manner not dissimilar to the way that Shandling mentored him, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Judd, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. We always begin just with a couple of basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born 
in Flushing, New York, in Queens, but lived in the Syosset Woodbury area of Long Island. My dad worked at a record company that my grandfather, Bobby Shad, owned when I was a kid. It was called Mainstream Records. They they put out the first Janis Joplin record, wow. which my grandfather produced, but they also were you know, an eclectic label with a lot of jazz and blues at a time when a lot, a lot of people were putting that out. And so they released records by people like Maynard Ferguson, Sarah Vaughan, and people like that. And then later on, my dad worked in real estate. And then when my parents got divorced, my mom, well, she did all sorts of stuff. I mean, the main thing that affected me was she became a hostess at a comedy club one summer. And I was 14 or so. And that's the first time I got to watch stand-up. Right. So we'll watch young stand-ups. When I was a kid, my grandma was friends with Toady Field. So I used to go see her all the time. And I assumed that that planted some seed in my head also. Well, so I done some reading and it seems like there are a few key facts about your childhood. You consumed a lot of TV. Yes, I did. You began in a way studying comedy and comedians at a very early age. Mm-hmm. And you dreamed also from an early age of going out here to LA from New York. So how much of those things were the result of what became strain in your parents' marriage? Were those things all forms of escape for you, or would you have found them anyway had your parents not been growing apart? Well, it's, it's you know always hard to know in retrospect what the hell you were thinking, <laughs> but I certainly felt like I wanted to be involved in comedy and show business from a very early age before my parents got divorced. From the time I was about 10, I remember in sixth grade being obsessed with the Marx Brothers in a way most normal kids were not. <laughs> but I definitely felt like I need to get a job. I need to take care of myself. These people do not seem to be making wise choices. <laughs> and so I never felt like, oh, I could rely on them. Mm-hmm. My kids have that with me. I don't know if that's ultimately helpful or hurtful, right. but they always feel like you know, there's a place to sleep. Right. <laughs> and so I always felt like I needed a long-term plan right. and I need to be thoughtful and patient. And I worked as a kid. I was a dishwasher. I was a busboy at El Torito. And me and all my friends, you know, we were out there. Every time it snowed, we were trying to make some money mm-hmm. shoveling driveways. <laughs> I, I think about it now because I think we really needed money. Like, no one was just, like, slipping us 20 bucks right. here and there. I don't right. remember my parents ever just handing me cash to do stuff. You know, we were asking people if we could, you know, you know do something where you would give us some money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound, though, like even if there were issues between your parents, they and also your grandfather really encouraged this interest in comedy. You said in one thing I read that it was your dad who, in a way, introduced mm-hmm. you to comedy. Then you mentioned the stuff about your your mom working at a comedy club and your grandfather with, I guess, Toady Fields, who had, mm-hmm. he knew through the label. What were each of their relationships with comedy? You know, you're independently watching a lot of stuff on TV, but what were their roles in, in encouraging this? Beyond? Well, I guess on one level you could say comedy was admired. Mm-hmm. So from the earliest age, they you know would say... You know, Lenny Bruce was brilliant. No one was funnier than Lenny Bruce. And they were in the jazz club, so they mm-hmm. saw him and and spoke from direct experience. Tody Fields was one of my grandmother's best friends, so she was considered a glamorous, incredible 
person. So just that vibe was out there Mm -hmm. that this is a special thing. My dad, I think, was a big fan of comedy, so we had comedy albums around that he liked to you know, listen to them. If I wanted to put on a Steve Martin record while we were in the car driving somewhere, he was happy to hear it, as was my mom also. So I think it certainly had value. Yeah. If, you know, we would go to the Westbury Music Fair and go see Don Rickles or <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield or Burt Convy opening up for Toady Fields, that's what was a big part of my uh, childhood because it felt related to jazz. Mm-hmm. which was the family business for part of the family. And it wasn't like, you can't do this. It was, oh, you're interested? Well, do it. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't considered to be dangerous to pursue. And I think that's a big deal. So let's just briefly discuss a few things that I want to confirm if they're true, because they're kind of uh, amazing. When was your first encounter with Steve Martin? I used to drive by his house when I would visit my grandmother in California, and I asked him for his autograph when I spotted him in front of his house, and he did the wise thing, which is he said no. <laughs> he doesn't sign at his house or something, right? Yes, and I would just call security. Yeah. <laughs> so when I look back on it, I just go, well. Were you driving by or were you hanging out at his house? No, we were driving by. Really... Just anywhere we went, I would say, let's drive by. Yeah. I couldn't believe there was a physical structure that he was encased in. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, just the idea that he was real. Right. Well, so the kicker there, though, was what? You you have this failed attempt to get his autograph there. Yeah. I, you know, I asked for his autograph, and I've told the story so many times that it must be annoying to him. But uh, <laughs> but he, 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 you know, I wrote him a letter saying I couldn't believe he wouldn't give me his autograph, and then he sent me an autograph book. <laughs> of his book of like short comedic fiction, Cruel Shoes, and in it he wrote, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was speaking to the Judd Apatow. And, <laughs> and that was in 1980. Right, right. So I was, you know, I was 13 That's great. years old. Also, in terms of monologues, how did you kind of explore your fascination mm-hmm. with, whether it's SNL or Murph Griffin or whatever, mm-hmm. what were you doing with monologues? I followed stand-up comedy like people follow sports. So... You know, a kid might know all the stats of a baseball player. I I was tracking all the comedians and sitting home watching Evening at the Improv and the Merv Griffin show and the Mike Douglas show. And I would see, oh, the guy from the Mike Douglas show, he just got the Tonight Show. Like, I was very aware of, you know, Michael Keaton's right. career when he was a stand-up comedian or Jeff Altman. Right. And that was my obsession and then slowly, I'm sure I thought, oh, it'd be great to do this. And that's the kind of thing you don't really admit to people. <laughs> but when I started watching comedians, I got a job as a dishwasher at a comedy club and then a busboy just so I could get closer to it. Right. And then at some point I thought, oh, I can interview these people from my high school radio station because I just wanted to meet them and I wanted to ask them, you know, how do you do it? Right. I don't know how conscious I was at the time of if this information would be valuable to me. I may, at the time, have just thought it'd be great to be in a room with Steve Allen. Yeah. But I was asking specific questions about, you know, how how do you write a joke? How do you get stage time? How how does all of this work? Because there were no podcasts. There was no internet. There was no way to even understand the comedy club scene. I, I just had to ask people, Directly, how do you get on for the right. first time? Who who lets you on? <laughs> and those interviews, the first of which I guess was Steve Allen, 
have now been compiled in this great book, which I really enjoyed, Sick in the Head, which I guess you're doing a sequel to as well. I, I am. I'm working on that now. And so people can go and see that. So you're this you know, 15-, 16-year-old kid who's sitting there early in the career of uh, Jerry Seinfeld or somebody asking, what is a joke? Or yeah. how do you write a joke? Or not what is a joke, but like how do you how do you write a joke? And just getting, you know, kind of hoarding information from that, right? Yeah. And a lot of what I learned was things I didn't think about wanting to know, which is, oh, this takes a long time. Mm-hmm. You need patience. There's stages of this. You evolve. Your character reveals itself. Stuff that a 16, 17-year-old would never understand. And I think that's what I took from it more than anything is, oh, so this might be you know a seven-year journey to get good at it. Right. And I think we should just quickly know for any listeners who, who didn't catch this part or don't know this part, how did you get these people to talk to you? Well, back then, no one wanted to talk to them. <laughs> that's that's really the simple answer, is there was no place to even put interviews with Jerry Seinfeld. I had never read an interview with Jerry Seinfeld or seen a newspaper interview where they asked him probing questions. It just was a format that didn't exist. It's almost like I was trying to dream up podcasting. Yeah, no. But, I mean, you were still 15, 16 years old, so what was the value in this going to be for them? You approached them and said, you didn't say, hey, I'm a high school student. You said... Well, sometimes they might think it's promotional. Steve Allen was selling some records of phony phone calls he used to do on TV. But I think most of them just did it because they had a publicist who wanted to look like Like he or she was doing their job. But basically, it was your high school radio station, which maybe didn't even reach beyond the parking lot. Yeah, it didn't. I don't think literally anyone ever listened. Right. In all honesty, there's a a good chance literally no one ever listened to it. And I didn't even air most of that. Uh, Right. I just didn't care. But the pitch to them was, hey, we're going to put you on radio in Long Island, right? Or whatever. Yeah. And I don't even know if they thought it through that much. I'm sure a publicist said, hey, there's a radio station. Right. Someone's going to come talk to you and they're like, all right, because, you know, when you're in comedy, you mainly you're just sitting around all day. So if someone's like, someone wants to talk to you for an hour, you would do it. Now there's a lot of demand on people's time. So if you're a comedian, you're getting a request, you know, every other day to do a podcast, to do an interview. There's some value in it. But I, you know, I had never heard anyone sit down with Jay Leno and get his life story. So he wasn't bored telling it either because no one ever asked before. (laughs) (laughs) So 17 years old, you graduate from high school and you do what you said you wanted to do, move to LA. What was on the agenda at that point? I know you were for a while at USC film school, but was that right off the bat when you got, was that the reason you came out here? That was the reason I came came out. I didn't know where to go to college because I only wanted to be a comedian. I didn't want to be a director or a writer. I just wanted to be a stand-up comedian, but there was no major Right. So I thought, well, I kind of like movies and comedy, so I guess I'll study writing, and I had to write some short films to get accepted. I read them recently, and it's incredible I got accepted. <laughs> They're so bad and offensive. Right. <laughs> offensive for all sorts of reasons, right. not politically correct. But I didn't have a vision about it, and so even when I was in film school, I was – you know, for a moment I was interested, but also somewhat disinterested. And I started doing stand up in LA a little bit, and that really captured my imagination much more. And then I started writing for comedians to pay my rent. Right. And that led to 
comedian saying, hey, I'm working on a TV special or a movie, or can you punch this up? And so I started getting a reputation as someone that could write with you. Well, let's break that the steps of that, leading to that down a little bit. How'd you end up at the Improv? Why was that the place, and what were you doing there? I mean, it probably was just because I watched Evening at the Improv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that seemed like the center of the universe. The Comedy Store at the time was a little more imposing. And I met Adam Sandler, and Adam was in good favor with Bud Friedman. Bud had seen Adam perform in New York and said, if you move to L.A., I'll take care of you. I, you know, he believed in Adam. Mm-hmm. And so I would go hang out there with Adam, but I wasn't in. <laughs> and then it took me a little while to audition right. for Bud Friedman and the other owner, Mark Lana, to get accepted. And then I was emceeing four or five nights a week and then doing you know, one-nighters around town and then eventually doing some of the road clubs for the improv. And were you going over well? I mean, it was well enough that you ended up on this young comedian special on HBO, right? But were you feeling like it was going well? I think it was going okay. It's just, you know, I was always aware that people were better than me. And as a fan of comedy, it, it bummed me out. I didn't really have a vision of how I would get much better, I think. I didn't think... I'm getting close. You know, I, I thought, I'm fine. I'm a third-rate version of the people I admire, and maybe I could get closer. But when I started getting a lot of really good writing work, it just seemed like, oh, maybe this is the thing that you do. And I was getting paid a lot of money. To do, right? to, you know, as a kid, you know, you do a spot at a club, sometimes you make 50 bucks. So if suddenly you're making thousands of dollars, you're like, well... I guess this I should do more of this thing. <laughs> I didn't have it in me to go, I'm going to stay broke and become the best right. comedian ever. I was like, what? Well, you want me to produce a sh- <laughs> You're going to give me six grand to write this special? <laughs> you know, that's a lot of spots for me to make six grand. Right. A lot of the gigs back then were like five grand. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you'll work on this special and it's five grand. Like, five grand. Oh my God, that's Sign so much money. Right. But were there things that kind of, in a way, also simultaneously were pushing you away from the – yeah, that's pulling you towards writing. But were there things that were pushing you – I want to bring up two that I read. First of all, you're, as you said, you're rooming with Adam Sandler. I guess mutually you guys shared a good friend in Jim Carrey. From, I was friends with you Jim. You were friends with Jim Carrey. Yeah. And so there's this quote of yours that I saw where, quote, in a weird way, it's a terrible piece of luck. It's like being in a band and your friends are the Beatles, close yes. quote. Yeah. That, so just the idea of – Maybe you were better than you thought, but you're just, it's, you're around these guys. It, it can make anyone feel inadequate. Sure, because, you know, that was, you know, back in 1990 or around there before they were both big stars. And when I think about everyone I've met since then, I don't think I've met anybody yeah. <laughs> like, like those guys where you, the second you met them, you felt it, an inevitable sense that they were going to take over the world. Right. It wasn't like, that person's talented, or, oh, I love that person's writing or their point of view. You really felt like they're about to become Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. And almost no one has done that since that I've met in that same way from stand-up. And it definitely was both exciting and intimidating and depressing (laughs) at at the same same time. Uh, But it was a special moment, and, you know, there were other people in the scene, too, that you, you were rising quickly, like David Spade and Rob Schneider. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, in the club, there were people that 
weren't part of our group, but you knew that they were amazing. You know, every night you'd see, you know, Ellen DeGeneres, and there was the beginning of seeing Chappelle around town and Sarah Silverman. There were just a lot of great people. And I was doing fine. I mean, getting on the Young Comedian special was one of my main goals. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was very good on it, but I did it. I cursed a lot because I thought, <laughs> I'm on HBO. I guess I'm supposed to curse. Right. And I didn't really curse in my act, so I, I look ridiculous, I think, <laughs> on it. But the Ben Stiller show had just gotten picked up, this sketch show we were doing for Fox, and suddenly that took up all my time. I didn't have any energy to give stand-up. Was the final straw, though, for stand-up something with Jim Henson? What happened with Jim Henson, of all well, that people? That was a couple of years before that, but okay. I, I talk about it in my stand-up act that yeah. me and Adam auditioned to host some kind of reality-based comedy show where people would travel around the country with video cameras, and I got rejected. And they tried to buy all the ideas I pitched, <laughs> and someone communicated to me that Jim Henson didn't want me on the show because he thought I lacked warmth. <laughs> Which I actually don't believe. I don't really believe. I think that's probably what a casting right. director might have said. I can't imagine he said that or wanted someone to communicate yeah, that right, to yeah. me. <laughs> but it definitely hurt my feelings and seemed to support an instinct that I had, which is I'm not Steve Martin. And was part of my getting insecure about how good I could get a stand-up versus the fact that I felt very strong in writing. Right. And... People were very appreciative. And, I, you know, I would write sketches with Jim Carrey for In Living Color. I couldn't get on staff, so he would just pay me <laughs> out of his own pocket and come over to my apartment or I'd go to his. And they would make those sketches. I wrote some of the Vera de Milo sketches that he did. And there was a sketch about a self-defense instructor who kept giving women in the class a knife to try to stab him. And he says, I'll show you how to defend yourself, and then they just would stab him. <laughs> and there were some really funny sketches. So I was getting rewarded and right. seeing my work performed. Right. And that was a big motivation towards thinking, oh, maybe do more of that. So pre-Ben Stiller show, which I guess was the first really, truly big responsibility that you had in the business, right? Let me just ask you about a few of the other people that you worked with. So let's start with Tom Arnold. Well, Tom Arnold came to town from the Midwest to work on Roseanne, a bunch of my friends were part of a group of people that Roseanne hired that she knew from Minneapolis. Sid Youngers, Joel Madison, Don Foster. And at the time, people thought, oh, Roseanne's bringing all of you know her buddies to write her show. They don't know how to write. But that became the golden era of Roseanne. Mm-hmm. Our, my friend Brad Isaacs wrote on the show at that time. And Tom came out, and suddenly he was like running the show with, I'm sure, a more professional showrunner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was a time of you know, excitement and chaos and crazy, and, and Roseanne was on top of the world. Did you have much to do with her, or was it just sort of separate. separate. Well, I, got, I got a job writing jokes for Tom because no one knew Tom was. Right. And suddenly he's famous and people are making fun of him like he's a kept man or something or he's weaseling in on the Roseanne gravy train. So me and Tom wrote an act addressing it all and it was really funny. <laughs> and and that was the best way to reply is yeah. look how funny I am. Mm-hmm. I am a talented mm-hmm. person and I have a sense of humor about all mm-hmm. of this. And Tom was really fun to work with. So then I worked on three HBO specials with him, which the formats were basically 
you know, Tom trying to solve the problems of the world. So it'd be a sketch, like he'd bump into someone like Fred Willard or Frank Zappa or something, and they would talk about something, and then suddenly Tom would go try to solve it, like the environment or or something. And there were reality pieces. Chris Farley did did one. Jim Carrey did one. And that was you know a great training ground for me. Pete Siegel, the director, directed all of them. Uh-huh. Stephen Leo wrote them with me. And my editor, who did a train wreck, Bill Kerr, that's when I met him. Was wow. This is you know back in 91 or something like that. And then at some point, Roseanne asked me to write jokes for her. I started writing jokes with Norm MacDonald. Mm-hmm. And then Norm got hired to write on Roseanne. Mm-hmm. I kept not getting hired to write on Roseanne. I don't know why. <laughs> so, But for about a year, I worked with her on her act. And she did an HBO special mm-hmm. of called Roseanne Arnold's stand-up or something. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a this gold lame Elvis jumper suit or something. Right. Or, and it was great. It, it was like this special where she talked about what it was like to now be famous, mm-hmm. what the change in her life had, had been. Did she generally have it together back then? Or, or were you seeing things that might have well, been warning I, signs? I remember her sitting with her and I said, I can't write jokes for you and with you because I don't know you. And I, I brought a tape recorder and I interviewed her for hours oh, wow. about her life. Oh, that's right, because it's in the second the head. Well, it's not that interview. Not that that's interview. a okay. newer interview. But okay. back then, I just tried to figure out who she was. And she told me a lot of things that came out later yeah. in her book that she was keeping private mm-hmm. about a, all sorts of very personal yeah. things uh, and difficult things that had happened in her life. And then we would sit at her kitchen table, and she would pull out all these legal pads, and she had tons of, of ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember her saying, uh, I want to do a bit about uh, how uh, it's better to suck dick than kiss ass. Because at least when you suck dick, like you get something in return. When you kiss ass, you're just hoping that someone might notice and give you something. But when you suck a dick, that's a that's a transaction. I will do this. You will give me that. And so she would tell me these ideas and then I would try to flesh them out. Right. And it was so exciting. Yeah. I went to Minneapolis when they taped it at the, at the Guthrie. But it is amazing how many people who are today big in the world of comedy did, in a way, either pass through or really start on that show. She's so smart about hiring people, and she had you know, great instincts. But it was clearly someone that was put in a position to be a leader, in addition to being a creative person. Mm-hmm. When you're the star of a show and the executive producer of the show, you're a leader of like 100 people. And if you haven't spent any time in your entire life learning the skills to do that. It's right. very difficult. And you're under a lot of pressure to do a good job. And if you come into it with emotional issues anyway, right. it's very challenging. And it's remarkable the work she did and then yeah. the work that Tom did with her. The show was on for a very long time. Yeah. But for me, it was nothing but fun. Even yeah. the, the drama part was right. just hilarious. I couldn't believe I was in show business. Right. So <laughs> that's always how I felt. I can't even believe I'm here. So, you know, when the national anthem thing happened, I just right. thought, oh, my God, I'm, this, is just, this is exciting. I didn't think, what a terrible thing. I right. just thought, oh, my God, this is right. crazy that people are talking about right. You're in the all this stuff. It. So the first time you ever had anything to do with Gary Shandling, who's going to obviously come up throughout mm-hmm. this, was he was one of the people you interviewed, right, as a kid for the I, radio station? Yeah, he had just hosted The Tonight Show for the first time, and I interviewed him over the phone. He was in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and he was one of the few people that really tried to make me laugh. Oh, really? Like, he was funny. But he also laid out his career, what he wanted to do in terms of doing a, a show that was based on his personality, and that was what I found inspiring is he did tell me his vision for 
his future, right. and then he went and executed it. So all these years later, not all these years, maybe a, what a decade later, you're now actually a writer yourself and starting to make your your way on these projects that we've just been talking about. How do you then hear again from Gary Shanlin? Well, this is even before I did a lot of those projects. I was just working at the Comedy Magic Club, and he was on the bill. And my manager said to him, oh, you should let Judd write jokes for you, because he was looking for jokes for the Grammys. And he didn't really respond. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I didn't seem <laughs> impressive. I probably just seemed terrified. Right. And then out of the blue, I got a call. Hey, Gary needs jokes if you want to submit. Same for the Grammys, still. For the Grammys, for the 90, 1991 Grammys. Yeah. And so I just wrote a truckload of jokes. Yeah. And Gary, I think, mainly liked my setups. Yeah. I, I don't think he knew anything about music, and I was a clear resource to explain, here's what's happening with the band Kiss these days. Right. <laughs> and then Gary would write a better joke than what I had. Right. But he certainly took me under his wing and brought me to New York to be there for the show. Cool. and. You know, Sinatra's there and wow. Cindy Crawford and Nicholson and <laughs> Dylan. I mean, it was, it was you know, the high point of my time in show business. And that was the beginning of the two of you actually working together. I, I know it would be a little lull before it yeah. really started again. But well, our- then we became just very good friends. He was just really kind to me and we just hung out a lot. And he was creating the Larry Sanders show at the time. I was beginning to work on the Ben Stiller show. Right. He agreed to be in the sketch in the pilot, which I thought was part of what helped get us picked up. It just made yeah. us look a little So you delivered in for the pilot, sort of? Yeah. yeah. And Roseanne and Tom, all three of them were wow. on the pilot. And I, I always thought that's a big reason we got picked up. We yeah. just looked like, oh, the world of comedy is going to engage these guys. Yeah. In addition to the show being so unique. I mean, Ben had such an original vision for how right. to do sketches in a cinematic way that people hadn't done that much before. Uh, you know, it really was like the first like MTV generation sketch show. Like his style became the style of the MTV yeah. Movie Awards and all these things. Well, how did you first cross paths with him, Ben Stiller? Well, I was online at an Elvis Costello unplugged concert at, at the concert, and I was with Dana Gould, who I guess knew Ben and. We were just talking about how we heard HBO was looking for a sketch show. And we said, oh, let's let's get together and maybe we can think of something. And we thought of it just in the at the first lunch. And then we went right in and pitched it and sold it. And then HBO sold it to Fox, that they were going to be the production company. They weren't going to put it on HBO. So at that moment when we had sold this sketch show, two Fox that the two of us were going to run, we had known each other for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, is Fox saying to you, like, by the way, who are you? You're going to be producing a show on a major broadcast network? Who are you, 25-year-old? I think somehow we just leaped over all of the stages <laughs> of how you would get these jobs. And I, I'm sure there were people who thought, oh, they need to be supervised. And people were brought in to supervise us. Right. You know, the great Brian Gordon who at the time had just directed a, a movie for John Hughes, and he won an Academy Award for a short film he did. He was supposed to oversee us. <laughs> but being the great man that he is, he, he just said to us, do what you want. just do whatever you want to do. And, <laughs> and, I, and he, may, he, he knew the work was good, and, right. and, he, and he was helpful, but he wasn't an interloper. He wanted to support us, and it was a beautiful thing right. to have that person say, 
you do your work. Right. And that was, looking back, a very large gift, which I uh, appreciate. Well, that was, I guess, also that show was the first of a few serious heartbreaks for TV projects you were part of. That one lasted, I think, four months, 12 episodes I saw. Did you think life was over when that was canceled, that, you know, you might not get that kind of an opportunity again? Or was there something right away to go right into? I didn't think it was over. It was so hard to do. I was so exhausted, and I didn't really know how to do it. So, you know, there was also some relief because the pressure was so intense, Mm -hmm. and it was just so much work. And we loved doing it, and we were able to bring in people that we thought were great performers like Janine Garofalo and Bob Odenkirk and and Andy Dick, and then later David Cross Mm -hmm. came on for the last few episodes. But I didn't think it's the end of my career. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in. You're in the club. I, yeah. I'm, I'm working. And, right. and, and I knew the show was good enough that other people would give me work. And you won an Emmy with the rest of the writing team, right? So that, was, that must have been a Yeah, that was a bizarre <laughs> surprise. Right. And I thought, oh, I'm legitimate now. It wasn't like you're a loser. It was, oh, you did something that was so interesting that it couldn't survive on TV. Right. But people will now think... You know, what other ideas do you have? And essentially, that's kind of what happened, right? Because how did it work out that you now, I guess, hear again from Gary, come work with me on this show that, well, you'd already mentioned you were brought in on the development of it, but it was also, you were kind of juggling two jobs for a while there, right? It was not just the Larry Sanders show. Well, I was working on the Ben Stiller show. Gary was working on the Larry Sanders show, but I was like, you know, he was showing me audition tapes and talking about it because that's all he was talking about. And I had tried to get on sitcoms by writing a spec script of Get a Life and The Simpsons. <laughs> and I didn't get any meetings. I might have gotten an agent off of it, but I didn't get any meetings except with David Merkin, who was running Get a Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was only because Gary made him do it. Right. <laughs> but when the Ben Stiller show went down, Mike Reese and Al Jean, who were at The Simpsons and read my spec, they started a new show called The Critic, an animated show. Mm-hmm. With John Lovitz. So they asked me to work there, and Gary asked me to work at the Larry Sanders show. And so what I decided to do was half a week on each show. And they were all agreeable to this because they were also involved with Larry Sanders show? Or what was the, how did they work that out? I don't know. I don't know how I did it. I just, (laughs) I I, Gary probably asked me first and to consult. Right. And so I was a consulting producer two days a week. I still would come in more. And then I had a few days free, and so I, when, when they asked me there, do you want to come in, they were happy for me to come in a couple of days a week. And it was mainly just pitching jokes. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I got to write an episode of The Critic and an episode of The Larry Sanders Show that year. I wrote an episode called Larry Loses Interest, which is all about him just getting bored doing, right. doing the show. And so I got this incredible education from Gary about how he approaches comedy and uh, you know, looks at it from a very deep human place. He's really trying to dig deep to the truth. And then I was working for Mike and Al, mm-hmm. who couldn't be funnier, and James Brooks was the executive producer, and so I was, was getting... was always a hero of yours, right? Mary Tyler Moore, all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Taxi was my favorite yeah. show of all time. Yeah. So just to be in his ethic, you know, learning from Mike and Al, but occasionally spending some time with, with James Brooks, uh, you know, at the end of that year, I, I really had soaked in a lot. That, that became college. So how... By the end, uh, I guess towards the end of the Larry Sanders show's run, which 92 to 98, how did you end up getting the opportunity to direct an episode of his for the first time, which I think 
Was that your first time directing anything? That was the first thing I directed. I had you know left one season to go work on The Cable Guy. Mm-hmm. And then that final season, I don't remember. I think I wasn't even going to work on the show. I was just going to maybe write an episode. And then Gary called me up, and he's just like, it's kind of bumpy over here. I really need you. Can you... <laughs> Can you come help run the show? And I said, I really don't want to get into a fight with you. I feel like a lot of your showrunners disappear <laughs> from your show and your life. Right. And my friendship with you is more important than this job, so I'll do it. But you have to really stay connected to me, and we have to work through everything. And so I, I agreed to to do that. And they were great people there. You know, also running the show is Adam Resnick, who's brilliant, and John Stewart was on staff. And uh, and so it was a good experience. Yeah, Pete Hike and Alex Gregory, and I think I think that was the year Carol Liefer was there. It was an incredible experience. And then just one day, he just said, you're directing the next one. And I had never asked him, and it was terrifying, because you're being asked to direct Rip Torn. Had you wanted to direct? No. Not not that show. <laughs> I wanted to direct movies. I never thought I would direct an episode. But you had some kernel of a desire to get into directing, generally. Yes, but I didn't want to do it that way. Yeah. I was afraid to ask Ben to direct the Ben Stiller show. I just, I don't know. I, I just, in my head, I just thought it won't work. Mm-hmm. The shots won't match. The coverage <laughs> won't be clear. And I had watched people do it. And even though I had watched it for years, I think in my head... I, I thought, this looks so complicated. I can't imagine running all of this. And they shot 17 pages a day. It was very challenging directing work. But Gary really helped me with the episode. And then when I did Freaks and Geeks, I directed four. And I, I, I was able to learn a lot about directing there. Before Freaks and Geeks, I guess overlapping with your Larry Sanders era, you were doing... I don't know if you would call it punch-ups or rewrites or whatever, on a lot of different movies with yeah. Sandler and Carrie. Where I, I've seen references to Happy Gilmore, Liar Liar, The Wedding Singer, a lot of the movies that my generation grew up on and loved. What was the story, though, with The Cable Guy? Because it sounds like, for you, that was almost like akin to Gary learning that he had been screwed by Brad Gray. There was something where you got gypped over in a way, and it was pretty scarring. Well, in terms of making the movie... Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, it was you know a, a fun, intense experience. Jim was paid twenty million dollars. That was the first time anyone had made that much money. So the movie had a little bit of a target on its back. You know, is this worth twenty million dollars? Mm-hmm. The studio wanted to make it for forty, and so whenever we would need anything and and drift up a little bit, they acted like we were sixty million dollars over budget. Maybe at the end of it, we were. 41 and a half or 42, but it was like the movie cost $200 million by the way they dealt with us because they really wanted it to be profitable. They didn't want to be humiliated that they spent that much money. All of Jim's movies were mega hits at Mm -hmm. that point. And Jim wanted to make a dark comedy. He wanted to show other colors. He wanted to show people that he's going to always try to break new ground. And so we tried to do kind of a hand-that-rocks-the-cradle-type movie. And we couldn't have enjoyed it more, but it definitely confounded expectations of what it would be. And then in the during post, I, I lost my arbitration for writing credit after you know, really changing enough where I felt like it was warranted. But why did it even have to go to arbitration? Because there, you know, the original writer... 
as he should, wanted his credit. And looking back, I maybe probably could have handled it in a different way. I, I really felt like I had thrown out everything but like one scene and some of the structural ideas. Looking back as a 50-year-old man, maybe there was a way to figure it out and share it. I probably was trying to get too much. Mm-hmm. He probably was just fighting to get rid of me. <laughs> and I sucked at the time. And he was a lawyer. And he wrote a much better arbitration <laughs> than me. But there's rules at the Writers Guild which are very unfair, which yeah. is if you're a producer or a director, in order to get listed as a writer, you have to change more than 50%. Where if you're not the writer or producer, the bar is lower. And that really doesn't make sense. I mean, you either did the amount of work where you get should get credit or not. Right. The reason why that rule never gets changed when they vote on it is because most people are not the producer and director in the business, in the Writers Guild. They're writers. Uh-huh. So they're happy to have rules that help them maintain credits. Right. But it really is completely unfair that the bar is so high because you know it's a lot of work to make whatever adjustments you need to yeah. to make but i literally sued the writers guild and said that these rules i felt were illegal mm-hmm. you know why is there a different bar we should want writers to be producers yeah. and directors we yeah. shouldn't impose penalties on them because they get more power right. Most writers want to direct so that someone doesn't screw up their script or produce to protect their their script. So I was very traumatized (laughs) by losing it. People used to joke, Judd's the only guy fighting really hard to get his name on the cable guy. (laughs) But I loved the movie so much. And I stopped doing punch-ups as a result because I felt like it's so much work. I'm never getting credit. I, I feel like I'm doing a good job at helping a lot of movies work. And I really didn't like that there was zero acknowledgement of the writing contribution. So tell me if you disagree, but it seems from everything I've been able to gather that the thing that you are as proud of as anything that you've done would be Freaks and Geeks, which was on NBC from 99 going into 2000. It was one season, tragically, only one season. How did it come about, and then how did you surround yourself with such an unbelievable group of young talent that who have all gone on to – do amazing things. Just to name a few, Jason Siegel, James Franco, Linda Cardellini, Martin Starr, Busy Phillips, and probably most notably, because he's somebody that you have worked with ever since, I guess, a 16-year-old Canadian kid at the time, Seth Rogen. Just how did it all come about, and then how did those guys end up around you? Well, after the Larry Sanders show ended, I was you know, in a good moment in my career. People really loved how the show concluded. So... I got a four-year deal with DreamWorks. Jeffrey Katzenberg was very supportive of me. And I told Paul Feig, if you ever have any TV ideas, let me know. And then one day he just handed me a draft of Freaks and Geeks. Because you guys have been friends going way back. We did stand-up together. He was in Heavyweights as an actor. Yeah. And I immediately responded to it very strongly. And we were able to set it up at, at NBC. It happened during a period where... The head of programming had left, and so Scott Sassa, who was the head of NBC at the time, but was more of a businessman, he was in charge. So he just he just approved everything. <laughs> Where usually you wouldn't you wouldn't win all of your choices for casting. Scott Sassa didn't have that type of ego or training to think I got to get my fingerprints all over this. He was like, yeah, he seems funny. Yeah, he seems funny. And so we were very lucky to have the opportunity to develop it exactly the way we wanted to develop it. 
Which included all a group of stars who were not already known. Yeah, there was you know no one famous on the show other than uh, Joe Flaherty, who you know to me was like having you know, Led Zeppelin on the show, <laughs> and we set out to do something that people weren't doing, which is almost a little bit more like an indie film. Like here's what it's like to be a kid. Here's what it's like to feel like an outcast or, or to struggle through this period, and. That's also the the challenge of the show, which is it's a sad show. It's a little bit melancholy. You know, Jason Siegel wants to be a drummer, but he's not good at it. <laughs> <laughs> and we loved it so much, but we always had a sense we wouldn't survive. So we treated the season a little bit like a miniseries. And as a result, there is a beginning, middle, and end to the season. There's a, the the last episode is a question mark, but an oddly effective moving question mark because Linda Cardellini leaves to go follow the Grateful Dead right. and you, you're you left with an open question but that's oddly satisfying in some way. And it was very fun to search for fresh faces. And, you know, when you're really young, you're not lazy in your casting. You don't look at four kids. You look at 3,000 kids, and that's what we did. Right. We went around the country. We did open call auditions. No one does that. Is that how you found Seth? Seth was submitted on tape from Vancouver, and then we went to Vancouver to do an open call, and he performed for us live there. And we met Lee Shepard, who was at the open call. He played uh, Harris, like the mm-hmm. guru geek. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why we did well with all the casting was I said to Paul, Let's get the right kids, and then you'll rewrite the script based on who we found. Mm -hmm. And that allowed the show to be much more organic. We weren't saying, we need this long-haired freak kid with this attitude. And we just said, wow, this Seth kid's interesting. How would he fit into the group? And, And it was built that way. So why, after having enough network support at the beginning where the guy's just signing off on whatever, why did you then get so much grief towards the end where it seemed like you were constantly under the threat of cancellation and then as it became clear that that was likely the outcome it affected the way you were doing the show right i mean the little things episode was a fuck you to the network wasn't it it wasn't it was more about the idea that they didn't get it i mean some people got it you know they were great executives like shelly mccrory who really understood what we were doing But we knew that the head people had decided that they didn't believe in us. So we thought, well, let's go down swinging. Let's take some big chances. Let's do shows that we think are great. And on one level, there's something rebellious about it. But also we thought, well, we're here. (laughs) Let's let's, let's make the best of this and dig, dig deep. So we did do an episode about a girl who was you know born with ambiguous genitalia and her doctor had to choose whether to make her a boy or a girl and that was Seth Rogen's girlfriend mm-hmm. and and this was the episode about him finding out and deciding how he felt about mm-hmm. it and then there's a whole section where he wonders does this mean he's gay and a lot of people on the writing staff thought we shouldn't do the episode they thought it would somehow come off insensitive and they were concerned about that. But I thought there was a way to do it that was very supportive. And I, I think it's one of the best episodes we did because it is about Seth deciding, you know, he loves he loves this person. Mm-hmm. And it was very respectful to all those mm-hmm. ideas. And this is back in 
yeah. in, in 2000. And I think, you know, kids need those messages of love and, and acceptance. And I think the network was, not that they commented on that episode so much, but they were definitely thrown by the idea that a lot of the show is about the kids failing. Mm-hmm. And we were more interested in their friendship and how they supported each other when they failed than in showing everything work out. So when Sam Weir starts dating the cheerleader, the network was very upset that he instantly decides he doesn't like her because she doesn't like the jerk. (laughs) But to us, that's what childhood is about. Sometimes that pretty girl isn't cool. And you've created this myth in your mind, and she's a nightmare. Right. So we loved that, but I think it really bothered them. And was that the, like, what was the actual reason you were given for why the show was killed off? Well, one person said that that was the, the moment that they, that they turned on the show, was that he broke up with the cheerleader. Wow. I also think, you know, the ratings weren't very good because we were shuffled around the schedule and there were a lot of, you know, baseball games. I think we were on like, 12 out of 26 weeks. It's not helpful. So it was hard to get any traction. And we had a lot of critical support. I mean, the reviews couldn't have been better. But, you know, if you're on one week and off two weeks, then on two weeks and off two weeks, it's pretty hard to reach people. And the internet was just starting. And we had a website, but this is how long ago it was. I asked NBC if when they place ads for the show, if they would list our website address, and they said no, because they didn't want people to know the internet existed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, you had a similar experience, I guess, with the next show, right? Because this is, so Undeclared was 2001 to 2003, starting basically right after Freaks and Geeks ended, not long after. And in a way, it seems like it could be a a sibling show, a lot of people were saying, is this sort of freaks and geeks now in college? Was the experience in any way markedly different with that one, or you're just running into the same crap? It was a, a very similar situation. <laughs> you know, after the show ended, I, I wanted to keep working with everyone. I felt like we had a lot left to say. And and so some of the cast and some of the people involved got involved in our show about college. I had only worked with Fox on the Ben Stiller show. And I was not very happy with our <laughs> our cancellation. And so when the same person who canceled us said, hey, I won't do that again. I swear I'll give you enough time to find your audience. Right. For some reason, I believed him. <laughs> and then the exact same thing happened. Instead of getting 18 episodes, I think we did 17 for Undeclared. There is a legendary story about how you responded to that happening from the same person at Fox. Can you share what that was? Well, I got the sense that we were going to get canceled because they had sh- they shortened our order. So now we're still shooting, but I, I forgot what it was shortened to. I but see. they took away some episodes. Like, 17 total you ended up doing? Yeah. I mean, like we, we thought we were going to do another five, and they said just do two or something like that. Right. And so we got a review in Time Magazine. We were listed as one of the 10 best shows on television. So I framed it and sent it to the head of the network, and I wrote a little <laughs> note on it that said, I don't understand how you're – Fucking me in the ass when your dick is still in me from last time. <laughs> it might have been worded slightly differently, but the assistant saw it right. and instantly sent it to DreamWorks right. and didn't ever let him see it. She knew it was a that career-ending right? 
thing. And actually, recently, the people at DreamWorks that we worked with, Justin Falvey, who's still there, sent it to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> so with the note on it. That's amazing. <laughs> so it's funny that it actually uh, exists. But that was a great joke because, you know, we were able to put a lot of people we just thought were funny who weren't stars yet on the show. So in addition to our cast, we got, you know, Charlie Hunnam was was in that cast and Carla Gallo and Jay Baruchel, but also Amy Poehler played the RA and Kevin Hart played the religious kid and Will Ferrell did an episode which was really funny and in 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 a sense felt like, oh, this is what a Will Ferrell movie should feel right, like right. before he had been the lead in movies. And so we had a blast. Sandler did an episode where he played himself performing at the school and then sleeping with one of the students. <laughs> I guess you can't do that story today. Not today. <laughs> <laughs> he was younger then. It was, right. it was a long time. It was decades ago. But you mentioned Farrell being a, a lead in a movie. I think the first time that happened was Anchorman. And I want to ask you about that because it seems like that's one of those moments where comedy history sort of changed course. Certainly your history did because, as I understand it, you and Adam McKay shared the same manager, right, Jimmy Miller. Uh-huh. Still do. Still do. Miller say, says to McKay, you should bring on Judd as a producer. McKay says he didn't have the most wonderful interaction or whatever collaboration with you in the 90s, years and years before, but he'll you'll meet with you. Mm-hmm. You guys now have a positive interaction, yeah. and as a result, you come on as a producer. If you had not come on as a producer, you would not have dealt with Steve Carell. And had you not yeah. dealt with Steve Carell, there's no 40-year-old virgin. Your first directing opportunity as a movie. Yeah, well, years before, you know, I was developing a script and Adam came on to do a big rewrite. It was like a Dead Zone parody. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, you know, a psychic movie. Right. I don't remember it going badly, but he talks about it as if it went badly. But I think he might have just meant I wasn't that talented, <laughs> uh, which might have been the case. I, I it, it certainly... Uh, you know, could have been that I just didn't know how to develop scripts that well at that time and was just beginning to attempt to mm-hmm. go, how do you fix a script that's not working when you bring on someone you think is funny? And so we weren't having arguments or not getting along. It just may have been I wasn't giving him proper guidance right. or whatever. But we enjoyed each other's company. And I guess at the time, you know, they were trying to get Anchorman going and and had a draft and weren't able to get any traction. And I helped kick it around with them. I, I had a, a deal at DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. So we were developing it with DreamWorks and then we couldn't get DreamWorks to make it. So Universal said they would make it. And then DreamWorks had a hit with Will with Old School, and one day Spielberg literally at a meeting said, what else we have with him? And they had to say, we just put his movie in turnaround, <laughs> and I guess he strong-armed Universal and made them give it back. Wow. And, wow. and so that's how it, it happened. But yes, all good things came from that, because Will and Adam are so brilliant and funny, and it was just... a. You know, the pleasure to watch them work and to be a part of that collaboration in a small way. And then I noticed, and we all noticed, that Carell was just, you know, on fire in a way we had never seen before. And I liked the idea of working with new people. Yeah. So I just asked him if he had any ideas, and he said, yeah, I've always wanted to do something about a 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> and we were off to the races. Was it a challenge to get the opportunity to direct a film now for the first time? How did you win the confidence of the studio to do that? 
I think I had directed enough episodes of Undeclared and Freaks and Geeks that I seemed like a rational person to allow to do that. But also, I was a big proponent of Adam McKay as a first-time director, and I supervised the movie. And so I think they thought, well, you know, show running TV is a lot like being a director. And back then, they were looking for new directors. They were looking for... You know, strong voices, you know, comedy was booming, and that's what happened. Yeah. You know, people were getting shots to direct comedies. Mary Parent was the main uh, supporter of mine on that. Stacey Snyder was, was there mm-hmm. as well and was a supporter, but Mary was the one, you know, grinding on me. And, you know, she said, the second you finish this script, I'm going to green light it. Uh-huh. And literally, we faxed it. I think Seth was running the facts at the time and she called right back and just said, okay, start prep. Wow. And you've said you kind of had a philosophical shift on that one, whereas you might've pushed back on notes when you were doing the TV shows here, you were a little more receptive to working with the, the studio because maybe you'd had these, these, you know, positive interactions with them or what was that about? I think that, you know, when you're young, you, you're aware that you don't want to lose your voice, so when people give you bad notes, you can be enraged. <laughs> because your whole thing could go out the window if someone's like, don't cast this person, cast that person. Well, now the whole thing's shit. Right. <laughs> and you know, I remember being at the Ben Stiller show and getting all these notes, which were terrible, and I just said, well, I'm going to do none of them. What happens now? <laughs> <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize that when... You disrespect the people giving you notes. They really get more aggressive, and they try to destroy you. Yeah. And I had been canceled multiple times, not just because of that. It certainly didn't help. Right, right, right. And I tried to find better collaborators and to work at studios with executives that got me, and I think that's made the last 15 years much easier. Yeah. I've, I've found people that get what I'm trying to do. But at, at that time, I was transitioning to uh, you know, someone who could collaborate more right. in a more healthy way. I talk about all this on my master class. I, I, if anyone I, out there likes uh, <laughs> online courses, it looks, I know, it looks great. I'm going to follow up with it. But it seems like a big part of your comedy identity up to just before the 40 year old virgin was you're the underdog, you're the outsider, you've got a, a little chip on your shoulder, maybe. Now, when that movie's a hit and you're on your way, how does success like that impact things? Do you have a bit of an identity crisis at that point? Well, the funny thing is that there were so many projects I was trying to get made that I had a lot of material backlogged. I had been supervising Seth and Evan when they were doing drafts of Superbad. Mm -hmm. And then because we couldn't get Superbad made, I pitched them an idea I had about a pot action movie. (laughs) And so I had them write, write drafts of that, and then no one would make that. So there was just a lot ready to go and a lot of ideas that hadn't been written so it, it was very exciting i think you know like everybody else you have a moment where you take on too much because suddenly they're approving a lot of mm-hmm. things but overall i i tried to use that moment to champion everyone that i had been collaborating with so nick stoller got a shot to direct forgetting sarah marshall and then we did get him to the greek and greg matola who who we loved at undeclared and was a director we admired got to direct super bad and and Rodney Rothman was working on our movies and he worked on Undeclared. So it was a great moment where, you know, they were allowing us to 
break people. Right. Like, hey, maybe Jason Siegel should be a movie star. Right. And then he was. Right. And that happened a bunch of times. We got to work with Michael Sarah, which was a, a dream a few times. So the shift was more like feeling like you know, we seem to be in a groove and we're having fun with each other and we like this work. So it was very enjoyable. Right. Well, there were many projects here where you were a producer but not a director and those I'm just going to mention without hassling you for too much about them because I want to really focus on the ones where you were directing and producing and often writing. But those other ones, just the the producing included, I think, Talladega Nights and, as you mentioned, Superbad and Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Step Brothers and Pineapple Express and Get Him to the Greek and Bridesmaids and so many within a very short period of time. A lot of people don't want to produce unless they're also directing. What do you enjoy about producing when it's somebody else's baby in a way? Well, a lot of producing for me is just, it's the writing process. So even when I'm not a writer, the thing that I can do is be a thoughtful sounding board and to help crack problems. Mm-hmm. In addition, I think I'm, I've always been good at casting. Mm-hmm. So to help you know people conceive of what the cast is mm-hmm. seems to be helpful. And, and process-wise, I think you know, I've been good at crewing up and having a style of shooting that when other people execute it, 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 it gives them a lot more stuff in the editing room. So, you know, producing isn't just, you know, setting something up and disappearing. It's still a deeply creative position, sometimes more in certain situations, sometimes less mm-hmm. because people are just so crushing it. You never need to give many uh, creative notes to Adam McKay and, and, and Will Ferrell. Yeah. You know, they're so strong. But you're trying to be an outside set of ears and, and eyes to say, hey, this girl auditioned for 40-year-old virgin, and we didn't give her the part because she didn't seem like like that was her joke to play something so dirty, but you should meet this Amy Adams. <laughs> you know, like, you know I, like, right. so there are moments like that where you're you're proud to go, hey, I just worked with this woman, Jane Lynch, on 40-Year-Old Virgin. Maybe she could play Ricky Bobby's mom. Right. And so that's what a lot of producing is to me, is just, right. you know, being another voice that hopefully is a, a helpful voice and, and to make the productions work. So, right. you know, we got the right amount of money and the right nice people to help out. And then hopefully when they're kicking ass, there's not that much to do. You right. don't need to, uh, you know, direct over anyone's shoulder. Uh, Greg Matola, I, I, you know, he just crushed that mm-hmm. movie. I, there's zero for me to do. I mean, Shauna Robertson, my fellow producer, you know, was on set, I'm sure, working her ass off. But sometimes the team is killing it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to yeah. have to do as much in certain stages. Sometimes all your work is in... The writing part. Sometimes you have to help out a lot in editing, and sometimes you don't have to help out at all because it's just working well. Well, I didn't mean to leave off that list, the most recent one, which I think you probably came very close to getting an Oscar nomination for, which was The Big Sick, which was just this past year. It was great. And that I know you really did cultivate over a long time because we talked to Kumail a lot about that. But all right. So what I hope we can do with the remaining time is just touch briefly on each of these other ones that you've directed and close that with Larry Sand with excuse me with Gary Marsh Gary Shandling <laughs> driving myself nuts here so just a uh, um, touching on each one if we can so with knocked up 2007 this is this is not long after 40 year old virgin this is your first time directing after that was this just about providing a 
a great vehicle for this guy who you obviously are very fond of, Rogan, and keeping alive in a way the, the character from Freaks and Geeks. It seems to be a, a share some DNA. I think I had a sense that I thought, oh, this, I think this kid's a movie star. Me and Jake Hazen would laugh about it on the set. You know, he was like 17 years old when we were shooting most of the show. And we would look at each other and go, I wish there was a whole movie star in this mm-hmm. guy. It was as simple as that. Yeah. Like, I'd watch it. If someone made this, I'd watch it. And he was so funny when we did The 40-Year-Old Virgin that, uh, you know, we were spending a lot of time together. I knew he was a great writer, too. And he was helping me produce things. So it was just an idea that you know, came up in the office one yeah. day. What if Seth got someone pregnant on a first date <laughs> <laughs> as a comedic situation? Then I slowly realized, oh, then I could create this whole world where, you know, Catherine Heigl has a sister that could be played by Leslie. Mm-hmm. And, and you would see, you know, two ages of couples right. and the different problems. Like, here's a couple about to have a baby. And here's what it's like when you have the babies right. in the future. Okay, so the next one is two years after that, Funny People reunited with Sandler. A lot of people were sort of surprised by the tone of it because I don't think they knew the circumstances under which you were writing it. Can you just explain what you were trying to say with that movie, which was different than anything up to that point? Well, I wanted to write about being a comedian and getting into comedy and mentorship. Those relationships are always interesting to me crashing you know is a is a bit like that mm-hmm. you, you know you could say that Pete Holmes and Artie Lang is a version of of funny people mm-hmm. where it's a young guy with a troubled older comedian you know the episode that we're so proud of it crashing as we did an episode with Artie Lang which is about Pete realizing that he's he's a drug addict mm-hmm. and Artie is someone that he wants to help and he thinks he's helping and then he realizes that he can't help him mm-hmm. you know that he has to help himself and mm-hmm. and he realizes how naive he was to think he could just sober this guy up mm-hmm. and Artie Lang collaborated with us and sat with us and and told us what it was like and it was a very brave giving gesture to show people the torture of drug addiction and he's also so funny in the episode at the same time and his acting is remarkable. Mm-hmm. He really is a is a great comic actor and a great dramatic actor. But that those issues always fascinated me. And then I also was watching my mom who was struggling with cancer and seeing that sometimes she would think she was going to survive and it, her medicine seemed to be working. And then other times she thought she had no hope. And I realized that when she thought she was going to die, she seemed a little happier that she let go of a lot of her neuroses and a lot of the silly things in life that consumed her would go away. And then suddenly she'd get back a good test and they get very neurotic in the same way uh, as before. And that was something that I think I was just emotionally mm-hmm. working through, I, you know, in a way, you know, it was, it was my way of struggling with just grief and issues of life and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my my mom passed away shortly before we started shooting and I wanted to make a movie about the fact that the only thing that matters is being kind to other people and giving to other people and to try to do that through a comedian whose whole life has been about supporting his ego mm-hmm. and trying to stay famous and maybe he didn't treat people well. And the movie would be about, can he ever even begin the path to caring about people more? And that happens through his relationship with Seth. Three years after that was the next one. This is 40. You've said that in a way you were taking the characters 
that Paul Rudd and your wife played in Knocked Up and reviving them in a, in a way here. It was like the Marvel Universe. Yes, <laughs> you were out of the game. You it know, was my Ant-Man with Ant-Man. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really, I mean, I guess the deeper level here is that it was just how does your relationship with your parents manifest itself in your own marriage? Is that fair to say? I, yeah, I think I was exploring just baggage. Mm-hmm. Just Here's, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of history and this type of baggage, it's what you bring into your marriage and also just talking about long-term marriage and what comes up and and all the terror we all have about whether or not we're doing a good job raising our kids in a technological age and also a movie about aging about turning 40 and assessing how it's how it's going mm-hmm. and it's a movie I'm really proud of I think that you know Leslie and Paul did brilliant work Leslie's a real collaborator also on the on the writing side and the conception side, and we did get a chance to work with John Lithgow and mm-hmm. and Albert Brooks, which you know, I still can't believe that <laughs> happened. And you know, Jason Siegel was in it, and right. Chris O'Dowd and Megan Fox. So that was a very joyful experience for us. The next of the films, I think, the most recent of the films that you were director and producer on is Trainwreck, 2015. Which it's interesting because that came a few years into also being involved with getting off the ground girls and producing girls. And I just wonder, I guess with both Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer, how did you sort of recognize that people who had not really done anything quite like what you were now going to be doing with them were capable of that responsibility? I mean, they obviously validated your confidence in them in both cases majorly, but they were not obvious to everyone or else somebody else would have done it. It's hard to know. I just saw a tiny furniture and thought Lena was a very special artist. It's funny looking back because in my head, you know, when I saw a tiny furniture, it was like I was watching Star Wars. <laughs> it was as if it was incredibly popular. I didn't realize like no one on earth had watched it. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, I gotta get this person to work <laughs> to allow me to work with her. And I got lucky because she had just set up a pilot at HBO. She hadn't written it yet. Mm-hmm. And my friend Jenny Connor, who worked on Undeclared, was just beginning to develop it with her. So they asked me to come on board. But it was like she was already in my head a superstar because I could tell how talented she was right. and that something really remarkable was about to to happen. And I related to the era and I felt like, well, this is like Freaks and Geeks in a way. It's mm-hmm. like Freaks and Geeks gets out of college. Yeah. <laughs> and I always thought, you know, women are a mess just like men. And I love that there was a woman who could express that. And you'd already had a hand in that sort of thing with, with Bridesmaids. I mean, there was never in history, I think, a bigger female-centric blockbuster, right? Well, we were working on Girls and Bridesmaids simultaneously in the development, because mm-hmm. Bridesmaids, we, we worked on for four years of, really? of writing or something wow. like that. It wow. was about a five-year process, the, mm-hmm. the whole movie. So both projects were incubating at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I started out writing jokes for Roseanne. So, right. you know, to me, I didn't see it as any different than other stuff I had done. People had focused in on the fact that I enjoyed writing idiot men and immature men, but that didn't mean it's all I wanted to do or all I found funny. I just happened to stumble upon some stories that that really made me laugh about how immature guys can be. Right. But I was very lucky to meet Lena and and Kristen Wig and then obviously it all started with Leslie, you know, who was the first person who 
talked a lot about how badly written most <laughs> rules are for women and how there aren't enough. Made you think about it, yeah. All right, so that brings us to this year where on March 26th and 27th, back-to-back nights were the first screenings on HBO of this massive documentary that you made about Gary Shandling, The Zen Diaries. Did you ever want to make a documentary prior to having such a personal situation? I mean, what was the kernel here? Would you have made a documentary about Gary Shandling if he had not passed away suddenly when he did? I I don't think so. I always loved documentaries. I don't think I ever thought about making one. And then I got asked to do a 30 for 30. And I had watched those and thought, that'd be kind of cool to do that. I wonder how that works. I had done an episode of the TV show Iconoclasts, Mm -hmm. and the director was this guy, Michael Bonfiglio. And as I was shooting with Lena, we were shooting the day of the first table read for season two when the show just aired for the first time. So they caught us in a moment of pure joy that the show was working and we were being allowed to do a second season. I could tell how talented he was just by how he was shooting us and the questions he was asking. And then when I saw it, I thought, oh, this is a special Mm -hmm. person. So I asked him to direct this documentary with me about Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and their problems with addiction. And then we started working on one about the Avett brothers, which also aired on HBO this year, called May It Last. Mm And then when when I was working on putting together the memorial for Gary, I, I edited some little five minute documentary pieces, and I realized, oh, there's there's a documentary here. You had known about the journals and stuff all along. I, I think I vaguely knew, yeah. but then I was putting together a booklet to give out at the memorial service, and I scanned some pages, and then. I realize there's a way to use that as the foundation of this story because everybody loved Gary, but everyone also thought, what's the deal with Gary? (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was so sweet and so interesting, but it could also be kind of difficult and prickly. And, and what was that about? Like, how do you become Gary? And what is that exactly? And we all loved him so much, but really didn't know the answer to that. And through the journals, I felt like I finally understood. And I also thought that Gary would be okay with explaining it. Mm -hmm. I think that he felt like your life is about learning and evolving. And if you're a Buddhist, it's all about losing your ego. So you wouldn't have an ego about, you better make me look good. That's the opposite of everything he believed. Now in life, he struggled with that. You know, he wanted to be successful. He wanted to be well thought of. And I think that was one of the big conflicts in him. That's why he made the Larry Sanders mm-hmm. show was he he was not proud of his ego. He was trying to let go. And he did something most people don't do. He slowed down work. He right. tried to figure out who he was as Gary without work. And I realized, oh, I think that his whole life is a lesson. And he would want us to teach that lesson. And the lesson is simple. You know, it's how how can you feel less separated from other people? How can you be kinder and, and more loving? And his life is so fascinating and it's it's so moving that in his final years, he, he was so focused on that. What did you find the most challenging part of, of doing this? It's four and a half hour big thing you bet off. What was the thing that gave you the, the most difficulty? It's funny because I never thought of it as difficult. I knew it would work based on having cut those first little five-minute 
things together. I got very lucky. My editor, Joe Beshenkovsky, he edited the movie Jane about Jane Goodall, and he did Montage of Heck, the Kurt Cobain documentary, and he was an amazing collaborator. Michael Bonfiglio produced the documentary, and I had a good feeling about it the whole time. Mm -hmm. The hardest part for me as a hoarder is (laughs) what to leave out. Yeah. uh, You know, what material to use to express certain periods of his life. Because, you know, if you watch all the stuff he did, it's all so funny. You know, there's so many Larry Sanders scenes that could be the scene you show to explain what the show is like. Mm -hmm. There are so many interviews where Gary talks about his life that are so funny, but you can't show that much of him. Mm-hmm. So I might find an amazing half hour with Tom Snyder, and I would be so sad that there was no reason to put it in the right. documentary, but I want everyone to watch it because right. it's so funny. It's sculpted. So luckily, I said to HBO in the middle of the process, I don't think this is a one-part documentary. I think this is something that goes alongside the Eagles documentary mm-hmm. and the Bob Dylan and George Harrison documentaries as you know, two-part, four-hour documentaries and Richard Plepler said just make it what it should be and it's very rare you have a supporter like that Casey Bloys was like that too at HBO they just said we just want it to be great and let's talk about it when you're done just show us and I showed him and they were thrilled because Gary was so important to HBO because the Larry Sanders show although not a giant hit it made them realize that HBO should basically be like the Larry Sanders show in, in, in a sense of digging deep, going for quality, going for innovation. And they point to that as the show that helped them define what the network should be. Well, one of the things that really comes across in the doc is that you show how many people he helped to, young people who he, in a way, mentored, including obviously you. So what I'm wondering is when I see you with Kumail or Amy Schumer or Lena Dunham or all the people who you've done that with, are you consciously trying to kind of emulate what he did and and pay it forward in a way? Or or is that... You think you just just coincidental? I think that on some level you absorb your experience. I was someone who was in his early twenties. I met Gary, who was already a a big star coming off of It's Gary Shandling show, and he took me under his wing and he taught me and he was kind to me. And I think without really knowing that's what I was doing, I thought on some deeper level. Oh, I guess that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You you try to make it, and then it's fun collaborating with new people because they have a lot of ideas and a lot of passion, and it's fun to teach people. You're paying it forward, as they say. And I'm a fan of comedy. So when I meet a, a young comedy person, it is like meeting Lena, and in my head, it's like, you know, I'm meeting Scorsese. Mm-hmm. I'm that excited. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I get a lot out of it also. So it's not a purely giving experience there is the giving side to it but then there's just the joy of collaborating with ridiculously talented people i learned as much from seth as he learned from me mm-hmm. he inspired my style because of how aggressive he was <laughs> I, I i wouldn't have gone in, in such an aggressive direction on 40 old virgin if he didn't find that so funny <laughs> and i learned a lot from lena on girls and that affected the work that I did on, you know, this is forty and Trainwreck, mm-hmm. just watching her, her look at her life and how she turned it into stories. Yeah. Well, the last question, I guess, is just so having just spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort into studying and remembering Gary, a person who lived a life in comedy, you know, for decades. If one day, long in the future, somebody 
wants to sit down and make a similar film about you, what do you hope will stand out in there? How do you hope your legacy will look, how you'll be remembered in a, in a similar context? Well, I hope the life part is boring. <laughs> That's what I hope. I hope there's not much drama. Right. That's uh, what I'm going for. Right. To keep that as simple right. as, as as can be. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've put a lot of things in the world that give people a break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's you know one way uh, I look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, life is uh, is difficult. There's a page in Gary's uh, journal that I always go to as a guide. I was so happy that I found this where he says, "Maybe your comedy is a natural gift to be given to others with joy to help them through this impossible life." And you sharing it with no desire of getting anything, and that's that's the hope that you yeah. could you could live by that as a guiding principle. It's a good one. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and a lot of laughs. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.